Well, once again, good morning to you, and I would like to extend as well a special welcome to those of you who may be visiting. Uh, We're glad to have you with us, whether you are out of town guests or local visitors. uh, Always good to have other folks here with us to worship our Lord. Well, this morning we continue with our sermon series in Philippians, and as we do so, we step into one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. If the Bible were an art gallery, this piece of art would be one of the top two or three works in the entire gallery. This masterpiece that we are about to gaze upon is an amazing portrait, a portrait of God, a portrait of God entitled Humble Exaltation by the divine artist himself through the paintbrush of the Apostle Paul. Now, as any art appreciator knows, uh, one viewing of a work of art is not enough. Uh, You can come before a masterpiece, but you need to look at it over and over and over again. Uh, a, A mere glimpse at the enormity of that Art piece is beauty. It's just not enough. But still, a glimpse is enough to move a heart. It is enough to change a person. And so we come to our text today, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's found on page 980. But before we hear God's word from Philippians 2, let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you once again thanking you for your word, which is life to us. And we thank you that you are a God who is at work within us by your spirit, taking that word and working it deeper and deeper into our lives. And we pray that you would do that afresh this morning. That you would open us to your word and your word to us. That we would catch a glimpse of your beauty and majesty. And that in doing so, by your grace, you would change us. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now hear the word of God from Philippians chapter 2, with verse 27 of chapter 1 as an introduction to our passage. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, 
Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this is the word of God. Well, before we get into our text, I want to take a moment to set the context for us. And as you have just heard, Paul has exhorted the Philippians to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the gospel. And then echoing Jesus's high priestly prayer in John 17, Paul emphasizes that unity in the body of Christ is essential for our witness. Unity in the body of Christ is an essential piece of living out the gospel. Well, for one, the gospel is a message of reconciliation and peace with God. So how? How can a watching world be persuaded that Christ reconciles us to God when we're not reconciled to one another? Also, disunity always turns a fellowship in on itself. And in those times, we end up wasting so much time and energy and resources as we devour one another through conflict that is not responded to biblically in grace. Not that we don't have any conflict, but it's when we don't respond to it through the grace of our Lord. Now, later in his letter, Paul will single out two individuals who are at odds with each other. But here he begins to address these tensions that he knows exist within a fellowship of believers that he loves that he cares for so deeply that he's already told us he has the affection of Jesus Christ for. And so in the opening verses of chapter 2, Paul explains that unity is founded on humility. And then he breaks into song. He launches into that famous passage holding the magnificent portrait of Christ is the source and model of true humility. So this morning as we survey this work of art, we are going to note three things. A posture, a problem, and a person. A posture, a problem, and a person. So first, a posture. Picking back up with verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Well, when asked to list the fundamental principles of the Christian life, the the great church father, Augustine, gave a list of three. Three fundamental principles of the Christian life. He said, first, humility. Second, humility. And third, humility. I think you get the point. To have the genuine unity that is the body of Christ that Paul is calling for here, humility must be the foundation. But if we think about the Roman culture that was influencing Philippi at the time that this letter was written, uh, humility was really not a value that that culture embraced. And I think if we were to talk about it now, most would agree that the value of humility is really not embraced all that much in our American culture either. Now, we like humble people, but we just don't want to be those humble people. 
I mean, you've probably had a job interview, and uh, if you've ever been trained at all and how do you give a good job interview, you know you've got to be prepared for the questions about your personal strengths and weaknesses. And of course you know when you get to those weaknesses, you throw out things that, well, if you just look from a slightly different angle, it really could be a strength. You know, I struggle a lot with pride. Very proud of my work. I bet you want me to work for you. But strengths and weaknesses, job interviews, humility just doesn't make the cut. You see, humility from a worldly perspective, we often think of it as synonymous with being weak, having no backbone, being timid. But from a biblical perspective, humility is a place of true strength. It is from the depths of this strength that one is able to be truly secure. Truly confident. It is from the depths of this strength that one is truly freed to look away from self and to actually love other people. Now, this isn't the only place that Paul writes about unity and speaks about humility as a part of that unity that we are called to. His letter to the church at Rome, he writes this in Romans 12. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So even there, you can hear Paul's emphasis on unity. And in that, embedded is the call to humility. The call to humility through that phrase, sober judgment, is the descriptor of how we should think of ourselves as we look outward to other people. So in Romans 12, isn't that just a different way to say these words here in Philippians? In humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but look out also for the interests of others. And isn't this just simply a different way to to restate the great commandment? As Jesus spoke the words, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, C.S. Lewis says it well. Maybe you've heard this quote before. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Rather, it is thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Rather, it is thinking of yourself less. And as we are freed to think of ourselves less, we are also freed to love our neighbors as ourselves. So that's the posture that we are to have. Humility. But there's a problem. We aren't humble people. We aren't humble by nature. We aren't humble because of our sin. And Paul speaks to our sin using two words in the first part of verse 3. Paul writes, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
looking not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Rivalry and conceit. Well, to live in rivalry and conceit must mean, given the context here, if we are living in rivalry and conceit, it means that one counts him or herself more significant than others. I matter a little bit more than you do. Or that you do not look out to the interests of others, but only to your own interests. Rivalry, conceit. Well, okay, let's take a moment and look a little bit more closely at each of these two words. Rivalry. Another good translation would be the phrase selfish ambition, uh, which is the phrase used by the NIV. It refers to constant competition, a spirit of rivalry. Now, literally, in Greek, it's a compound word, and the compound word is this, hyper-fighting. That's what it means, rivalry, hyper-fighting. Now, we may not always be visibly at odds with other people, but, oh, we often are in our hearts. And we can detect rivalry in our hearts when we pause long enough to realize those moments when we always have to be first, when we have always got to be right, when we are quick to judge others for any reason, for what they have, for what they don't have. And also, when we become defensive so easily, so quickly. Well, to quote C.S. Lewis again in his uh, famous book, Mere Christianity, in writing about our competitive rival spirits, this is what he says when he is writing on pride. Pride is essentially competitive. It's competitive by its very nature. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having, uh, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud of. It is this competition, this rivalry, this comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. So that's rivalry. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. Let's take a look at this word conceit. Again, another good translation would be the the phrase that the NIV uses here as well, vain conceit. Or even better, a more literal translation, because once again we come upon a compound word, which means most literally, empty glory. Empty glory. Or as the old King James Version puts it so well, vain glory. Do nothing out of vain glory. It refers to glory hunger, to being starved for glory. In other words, being starved to matter, to be significant. I want you to know that I am here, that I matter, and I matter a lot. One pastor put it this way. There are a lot of things we're afraid of, but we are most afraid of not mattering, of being inadequate, insignificant, And so what do we do? We end up grasping for glory in and of ourselves. It's like grasping for air. We come up empty. There is nothing. We grasp for glory through our our acquisitions. 
the things that we have. Look at what I have. It's better than what you have. Or I have it and you don't. We grasp for glory through our accomplishments. Look at what I can do that you can't. Well, if you can, I can do it better. And ultimately, we come up empty. Empty, vain glory. Well, here's a reflection on this empty glory from someone who has made it big, who has it all in the eyes of the world. And she writes, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been devoted to conquering some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being of worth. And then I get to another stage. And I think I'm mediocre or, and uninteresting and, and worthless. And I have to find a way to get myself out of that again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible feeling of being inadequate and mediocre. And it is always pushing me and pushing me and pushing me. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody, that I matter. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. I still have to prove that I am somebody, that I matter. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Those words come from the memoirs of Madonna, written about 15 years ago. Now, how often do you get a sermon with C.S. Lewis and Madonna quoted in the same breath? <laughs> so rivalry and conceit, they will ultimately kill us. Individually, they will kill us as a community. As we selfishly compete to outdo one another in a vain grasping for empty Glory, personal glory. But I hope what we are hearing and what we are beginning to realize more and more is that our souls were made for something much bigger than ourselves. You see, we were created for glory, just not glory in and of ourselves. We were not created for this empty glory of self-serving, selfish ambition. No, we were created for a greater glory. A greater glory that is on display in a particular person in this passage. We were created for a glory that is self-giving in love and humility. And the only way to begin looking away from self and out to others is to look to Jesus. And that leads to our final point. So clearly we are called to humility. And just as clear... We've got a problem, a problem within each of our own hearts. And so we must look to a person. And fortunately, there is someone who addresses our problem. And to this person, to Jesus, we turn in verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, 
God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, again, this brief passage, just these few verses widely considered, one of the top two or three masterpieces in the art gallery of Scripture. So much is said in only seven verses. In fact, a couple of the commentaries that I looked at this past week dedicated 40 and upwards of 50 pages just to these seven verses. And then I came across a book on Philippians, a book of 364 pages. And of those 364 pages, the number that were committed to unpacking and understanding these seven verses was 364 pages. And we're going to get less than 10 minutes with these verses. 10 minutes to glimpse the beauty. But remember, even, the, even a glimpse at a masterpiece is enough to change a person. And it should work in us a yearning to glimpse again and again. To sit before the masterpiece, the beauty, and to be changed by it. Well, Paul's basic point is this. Simple, yet profound, and I quote Hebrews 12.2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. As one commentator puts it, the greatness of our Lord's self-humbling is measured by how low he was prepared to stoop from the great heights which were his natural and rightful place. Verse 6, Jesus was in the form of God or in very nature God. And Paul makes clear in the next phrase that Jesus possessed equality with God. And though one with God, Jesus did not grasp, did not reach after to hold on to, jealously guard glory, jealously guard his rights as son of God. Instead, verse 7, Jesus made himself nothing or poured himself out or emptied himself. Jesus emptied himself, not of his divinity, but by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The Lord of glory emptied himself, not by subtraction of his divinity, but by the assumption of our humanity. Fully God, fully man. Truly, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And the God-man, verse 8 humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, for our sake, in love for us. A servant of God stooping down to serve us. Well, what we discover about God in these few verses, according to professor and theologian, or to quote professor and theologian Gordon Fee, we discover that God is not a grasping, self-centered being. He is most truly known through the one whose equality with God found expression in his pouring himself out in sacrificial love by taking the lowest place 
the role of a slave, a servant, and whose love for his human creatures found consummate expression in his death on the cross. Again, Paul's basic point is this. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. But the verse doesn't stop there. It continues. And then he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Yes, Verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Here we get a magnificent description of Jesus' exaltation. Jesus has returned to the head of the table. He has been welcomed home to his rightful place of special honor. Verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This is Jesus, Savior and Lord. In the words of hymn writer Graham Kendrick, this is our God, the servant king. So yes, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. And you see, as we look to Jesus, we are freed from the bondage of self. And as we look to Jesus, we are freed to love others in self-giving humility. But I need to be personal for a moment. This was a hard text for me to be in this week. I wrestled with it a lot. In fact, I often felt wrestled to the ground by it. And I got to the point, one day somebody was over at the church, asked how I was doing. I said, I'm not doing well at all. I'm discouraged. I don't like this passage right now because I am feeling so exposed. Because I could see so clearly a picture of Jesus in His beauty and His perfection, His love for me and His love for you. Humble. Self-giving. And yet my heart was being exposed. Because sure, there are glimpses of that in my life. But I know that deep down there are places that are self-serving. That are out for me. Oh, I may serve you, but there's some advantage that I am getting. Those hard places where I am not humble. On the one side, I'm very proud. On the other side, very insecure. And I was discouraged. And so this friend prayed with me. And I began to look at Jesus again. And that's the good news. Because you see, as we look to Jesus, we also see who we are becoming. Who we are becoming by faith. We look to Jesus and we see the one that we are being conformed to look like. And we can rejoice knowing that His Spirit is at work in us, just as Paul declares in Romans 8, conforming us to the likeness, to the image of Christ. And we can be sure and certain that He who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That 
is good news. And that is true glory. A fellow pastor was uh, officiating a wedding a few years ago. And as usual, the groom was standing up front uh, with his pastor. Of course, they were flanked on either side by the wedding party. And then there's that great moment in all weddings. The doors in the back flew open. The bride in her beautiful dress was standing, entering into the worship area. Now, one of the great things about doing a wedding for a pastor is that he's standing right beside the groom. So not only does he get to look straight down the aisle like he is looking, but he can turn and see the groom just a few inches away, see his face light up as his bride enters the room. Well, this groom turned to the pastor, full of excitement, said, I'll be right back. And he took off down the aisle after his bride. How would it change you To truly believe that that is God's posture toward you. How would it make a difference in your life to know that that is God's joyful and expectant and loving posture toward you? Well, you should believe it because it's true. Jesus left his place of glory to come running after us, coming down to us. Jesus gave up his glory so that we could gain glory. Jesus emptied himself of glory so that we could then join him and be filled with glory. This is true glory. And this is true love. A love that is amazing, that is perfect, that is beautiful, that is transforming And also a love that is not always comfortable. You see, to be loved like this is both humbling and exalting. Because at the cross, when we come to the foot of the cross, you see that you are radically fallen due to sin. You're exposed. Your life is laid bare. All those things that you are grasping for. Nothing. But also... At the cross, you see that you are infinitely exalted through faith in the God who loves you. We come to the cross with nothing. But at the cross, we receive everything. We receive true glory, true significance. We really matter because of Jesus And the call to humility is ultimately a call to Jesus. To trust Him. To follow Him. To look to Him. So, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Please pray with me. Oh, Lord, how we thank you for this good news. That you would run after us. That you would empty yourself that we might be made full in you. And we don't understand it all, but we know it is true. And we ask that you would convince our hearts more and more. For you are the high and exalted one. And we thank you for your love of us. May it change us. In Jesus' name, amen.